think the health impact is huge and actually sometimes overlooked. Um, there's actually a interesting science behind um, eating produce from the geographic region you're in. Your body digests it more because it's grown in the same light and earth that you are currently living in, and therefore the nutrients are more bioavailable. So I think it's it's really interesting and compelling um, to uh, think about buying locally. Welcome to another episode of Animalia. Today we are talking about the future of food through the lens of venture capital, private equity, and the larger free market system. Our guest today is Julianne Hummelberg. She is an investor at Power Plan Ventures. It's an emerging growth equity fund whose portfolio companies make a lasting positive impact on the global food system. Power Plan has invested in a number of large now consumer brands that sort of meet these the, their, their criteria to create better lives for people, plants, and animals, some of which you probably know Beyond Meat, Just Egg, Veggie Grill. These are just a, a few of them. And then Julianne uh, sits on the board um, of Veggie Grill and is a, is a board observer to the Coconut Collaborative, Rebel, Own, and Jot Coffee. Julianne, thanks for, thanks for being here today. Thanks for all the work you're doing to improve our global food system. Do you want to say a, just a couple words about Power Plant and and why, you know, you chose Power Plant as the latest stop in your career and, and what attracted you to, to be part of this team? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, James. Um, at Power Plant, we invest and partner with visionary entrepreneurs whose companies contribute to better lives for our people, planet, and animals. Um, and this investment thesis really resonated with me um, as I got to know Power Plant Ventures, given my passion for health and wellness started at a very young age. Uh, my mom is a health coach, and so food was always medicine first um, and sparked a real interest in me uh, to just improve the, the quality of the food that I was eating and uh, became an avid uh, plant-based consumer in college, which stuck with me throughout my career as I entered investment management. Um, did investment management on the public equity side for about five years before really re realizing my passion was investing in uh, health and wellness and, and, and specifically plant-based food and beverage. So went to Columbia Business School to um, sort of uh, find that, that path and, and where that role would be. And uh, as a venture fellow and president of the Healthy Living Club there, was able to really cater my recruiting to uh, the goal of finding uh, an investment role within uh, the health and wellness sector and uh, joined Power Plant as they raised their second fund in the summer of 2019, which given the success of the companies they invested in in Fund One, uh, as James mentioned, which include Beyond Meat, uh, Thrive Market, and Just were able to raise a second fund that was 4x the size. Um, and that's when they brought me on. And we've really been fortunate to be in a position where we're able to continue um, growing the impact our companies have and support uh, companies, brands, and entrepreneurs that are 
promoting this plant-based movement. So really happy to be here. So today we are talking to Julianne about the future of food and the role of venture capital, private equity, and just capital in general in changing and improving our food system for the better. Julianne, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, James. So let's start with the you know super high level question. Um, what is the future of food? And um, you personally, how do you how do you start to answer that question in the work you do? Um, yeah. So obviously, don't don't have a crystal ball, but can share my perspective on on what I hope the future of food uh, will be and why I think that needs to happen. Um, my my real hope for the future of food is that it becomes more in control of consumers' hands. I think where we are today and how we got here is because so many consumers have just been unaware, largely, of the health, environmental, and animal welfare implications. We really invest in brands that help make this future a reality, where consumers are aware of the decisions that they're making and consuming food and beverage products that are better for themselves, the planet, and animal welfare. Um, we, we really believe in educating consumers and empowering and visionary entrepreneurs that create products that are better for, again, people, planet, and animals. Um, I think a fantastic example is what Beyond Meat's been able to, to do and, and bring um, the conversation of plant-based and environmental needs and animal welfare um, to the forefront of consumers' minds. And so I'm really excited uh, about what brands like that are doing for just consumer awareness of, of plant-based diets in general. Um, I guess just briefly touching too on how venture capital and private equity can help impact what I hope becomes this future of food. Um, we we really partner with entrepreneurs um, to help them create these purpose-driven businesses. So they're focused on optimizing um, their product offering and brand to educate consumers and create more ethical and sustainable food and beverage products. And I, I guess less, lastly, just to tie it all together, why I want this future and why I think it needs to happen is um, if we, we look at some statistics, nearly half of the world's overweight and undernourished. 20% of global deaths are caused by poor diets. Uh, very timely today, uh, but the CDC cites 70% of modern day infectious diseases have been caused by animal food products. Uh, 80% of countries today aren't producing enough food to feed themselves, and this is only going to be exacerbating as the population grows. Food and ag today contribute to over a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions, and 15% of that's from livestock alone. And over 68 billion farm animals are slaughtered globally by humans every year. And I think these statistics are really important to state because a lot of consumers are simply uh, unaware of a lot of this and have been made, making decisions on their consumption and consumption patterns that adds to all of these stats that they may be unaware of. And so I'm really excited about the future of food, um, having allowing consumers to regain control of uh, the decisions they're making and become more aware of the impact that their consumption decisions have. Absolutely. It probably varies 
where you are in the world in terms of what the biggest, you know, priority or need is of, uh, in terms of improving the food supply, certainly in your, some of the developing countries in the world, it's more of just access to food period, right? Where there's not enough food literally to go around. I think in a country like the United States, it's more of the sort of healthcare costs and the environmental costs that come with uh, sort of food status quo, food supply as is. Um, and you mentioned it, like when you we have things like obesity, overweightness, heart issues, they add an enormous amount of healthcare costs to our, our country that, you know, not all could be avoided, of course not, but some portion of them could be avoided if people ate healthier throughout the course of their life. And then there's environmental cost. And I think that environmental cost is where, you know, we're going to focus a lot of our discussion today, just because obviously that's what we talk about here a lot in Animalia. Um, and, just, you know, the the broad scope of food period uh, could probably have 100 podcast episodes about it. Um, in terms of that environmental cost, I've seen things such as, you know, food and even just livestock agriculture accounting for up to 50% of man-made emissions, food in general on a global basis accounting for 25% of carbon emissions. Um, can you... Can you just help us understand the role food plays in uh, climate change at a high level? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's one, just the, the carbon emissions um, and greenhouse gas emissions that you touched on. And then it's also land and water usage. So it's it's 10 to 50 times less efficient to grow um animal products relative to plant-based counterparts, whether that be chicken or beef. Um, And so as our global population continues to grow, it's going to be nearly impossible to uh, feed them in a way that we're currently producing food. And so what we uh, do at Power Plant is really back brands and entrepreneurs that are creating nutritious food in a more sustainable way, and that's greenhouse gas emissions, land usage, and water usage, um, as well as promoting animal welfare, um, and obviously not not killing animals and creating plant based products. So that's that's broadly how we view it. And then within plant based, there are also some you know environmental and uh, sustainability concerns there, um, such as the the palm oil industry. Um, monocropping of corn and soy, et cetera, that are still definitely more positive in terms of their environmental impact um, and impact on the planet, um, but still have some efficiency issues. Um, And so what I'm really excited about is sort of this plant-based protein 3.0 that I think is going to have even more stringent standards in terms of the environmental and uh, environmental ingredients that they use, but also the, the nutritional profile, because um, I think those go hand in hand. One of the topics I want to discuss with you once we're done setting the stage of the discussion is the role of the balance of the role of innovation and private enterprise with regulation. And I think, you know, based on our brief discussion so far, you naturally, and I think a lot of people do, lean towards the former more than the latter. Um, but they, they of course, are, are both, uh, you know, uh, both factors in this. 
And um, before we get there, the last thing I want to kind of tee up for listeners is the the two things that seem to me to be the sort of biggest causes of the environmental damage of our modern food as, and, and they're very interrelated, are sort of um, sort of factory farming on the meat side and our modern livestock industry with monocropping. And the reason they're interrelated is you know, part of the birth of monocropping was to feed livestock because, you know, as, as the livestock industry proliferated, uh, we needed to be able to harvest lots of corn, lots of soy, uh, to feed that livestock and do it at scale. And, um, so these two things are, are kind of interrelated, but they, they cause a lot of environmental harm monocropping, of course, minimizing biodiversity, and maximizing the need for fertilizers and pesticides that do more more environmental damage and thus a kind of a downward spiral. And then livestock, you know, put the moral issues aside for a second, which not everybody's going to get on board with, but there's an tre- incredible amount of energy and emissions used to raise, feed, uh, slaughter, and clean and transport and, and just generally production of livestock. And then you also have the added sort of risk of the disease outbreaks, which we're in the middle of right now, which likely came from a wet market um, in Wuhan, although where that's not get into the conspiracy theories on all that. Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, I mean, the link between industrial farming and, and monocropping is clear. However, we're also seeing monocropping continue to grow within um, some of the plant-based protein products that are being produced, namely around pea and soy. And so I, I think it'll be important for some of the new visionary entrepreneurs that are entering this space to just be aware of that. Yes, uh, plant-based products made of these traditionally monocropped ingredients like soy, corn, pea um, are more environmentally sustainable than uh, animally factored farms. However, um, it can kill land, right? That's the biggest issue with monocropping is it just completely erodes and degrades the soil. And what we are really interested in um, backing here at Power Plan is regenerative agriculture, which is really the antithesis of monocropping and really focuses on diversity to keep the soil alive and healthy and generating um, a variety of different plants and produce. Um, so that's that's really important. And I think we'll continue to be a conversation as we go from sort of plant go to plant-based 3.0 which is sort of this this future i envision where uh the the ingredients being used are the most environmentally friendly of the plant-based kingdom and they're also uh being grown in a way that's uh great for the planet and actually benefits the planet in terms of creating uh healthier land and soil for generations to come. Um, I do hope some of the monocropping declines as hopefully industrialized farming has declined. Um, I'm actually one of the silver linings right now during this coronavirus is just what the headlines around some of the the meat uh, facilities and and meat plant closures like Tyson's and Cargill um, as being outbreaks for coronavirus have done for the conversation. I think consumers are becoming more aware of just how inhumane, unhealthy, and 
environmentally unsustainable uh, industrialized farming is. And now that we have phenomenal alternatives that can really replicate uh, the taste of plant-based proteins, uh, I think more and more people will become and already have become flexitarians. I'd love to um, I'd love to get data on how many additional flexitarians or meatless Monday practitioners there are just because of Beyond Meat and Impossible alone. I think those brands have done so much to bring the conversation forward. And now I know that they're innovating in-house, but there's also a, a phenomenal entrepreneurs entering the space to create this plant-based 3.0 with um, even more environmentally friendly ingredients and nutritionally sound profiles of these uh, plant-based animal protein products. And it's a, it's a good point you bring up. And I, I think this is important to emphasize not to give people anxiety because, um, you know, when you, I think when you dig into so much of our food supply, you can sort of get anxiety of like, what can I actually eat? <laughs> that is not harmful in some way. But the fact that, you know, we still have more progress to go than just moving off of industrial and factory farmed meat because so much of agriculture is monocropped. And that monocropping is also can be incredibly destructive, especially long term to soil and to to land and to, you know, then you need, you know, you need intervention via fertilizers, things like that to, to make up for that. And that just creates more damage. And a good example of this, and I, I talk to people a lot when I get into this discussion, just to give them an anecdotal example is almonds. And almonds are a beloved food of, you know, like fellow plant-based consumers like me. And a majority of almonds come from California, but there's two, I think, secret, you know, kind of unknowns to the modern um, plant-based consumer about almonds. And one is they, they use an incredible amount of water to harvest. And two, they are sort of um, the, perv- the strongest purveyors of commercial beekeeping and migratory beekeeping. And in commercial migratory beekeeping, the process of, you know, kind of transporting tens of thousands of hives, um, you know, into a, uh, a non-native land for those bees to in order to pollinate, in this case for almonds, uh, is is incredibly damaging to, uh, to to honeybees, and the mortality rates of commercial beekeeping are sort of astronomically high because you sort of lack biodiversity. Uh, you get a lot of inbreeding. Uh, you can't control for a lot of the pests, you know, varroa, hive beetle, things like that. And a long story short, just commercial beekeeping, you know, is not great for honeybees, which is not great for an ecosystem. And so, and I don't say that again to <clears throat> make people who eat almonds now have anxiety over it or stop eating almonds because that, that's not my, my, my point here. My point is just being aware that these, all these things have more nuances than, than, than sort of what meets the eye. And we have to continue to continue to, to, to progress. So the beyond meats of the world that are using plant-based proteins, whether it's just using, you know, pea proteins, um, uh, or, you know, uh, you know, a plant-based burger using soy, also, in a lot of cases today, are probably still getting those things from mono, dominant monocropping uh, practices, and then those companies too have a role and responsibility to continue to push the boundaries on sourcing from regenerative farming and, and incentivizing and using their commercial success and their commercial scale to incentivize regenerative farming. Absolutely, and we are seeing that. So I'm excited for that 
to continue as these brands uh, grow financially and are able to allocate that capital to the the growth of regenerative farming and, and these practices. You touched on, um, you know, the almonds, which also brought up a, a, another consequence that we've seen negatively from monocropping is just the rise in food allergies. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of common allergens in consumers today are centered around crops that come from monocropping. So nuts, uh, wheat and gluten and soy. Uh, and so we're we're really excited about the uh, new food and beverage products that are coming in, not only plant-based, but also top eight or top 14 allergen-free. And as consumers continue to develop uh, these allergies to traditionally monocropped products, um, I hope that continues to move the conversation and need for regenerative agriculture forward. Yeah, that's a great point. So and let's talk about how we prioritize the different needs of our global food system. So there's a few that, you know, we laid out in our email exchange prior to this to this talk. There's environmental, which we've been talking about a lot so far. There's just access, which, you know, I think us in the United States, out you know, a small subset of people who live in food deserts, which we'll talk about as well, access is an issue, but for the majority of people especially in Western countries, access has not been as much of an issue. Um, uh, health, there's health health concerns, health needs, there's safety in terms of safety being more sort of protecting against things like pandemics. Um, there's fair labor, which is a big issue um, in many, many uh, parts of our agriculture system. The one that stands out the most is probably the cashew industry in Vietnam and sort of the exploitation that has happened there. And then, um, and then, sort of just general human services plugged into that fair labor. Fair labor. How how do we start to stack rank these things? Because not every, no one company can sort of innovate on all of those things. And you know, if we're thinking about from a priority of, of capital deployment or priority of regulation, how do we start to prioritize those different things? Given they're all so important, but you know, we we probably can't you know, make as much progress as possible on every, every single one simultaneously. How, how do, how, how do you start to do that on a global level? Or do you think it's just a matter of everybody attacking different, you know, combating different, uh, those, uh, those different needs in different ways. And so long as, as a collective from a global food system, we're sort of working and chipping away at all of them. That's sort of the answer. Yeah, I mean, great, great point. I would say um, it, it's. I think it's more of the the latter, right? I mean, you're you're not going to move much forward if you're trying to do everything at once. And so, what we do in diligence from a, a power plant perspective is really look at the company and what impact they're making across people, planet, and animals. Naturally, one of those is going to be prioritized for the company, which we are aligned with, but they can't largely be negative to the other two, right? They have to at least check the box across all three of those and then have a natural um, sort of hierarchy or prioritization. And then within each of those categories, there's so many things. I mean, touching on people, not only is it the health benefit, but it's also fair labor, Um Within planet, it's land and water usage, but also is that regenerative? 
um, not just comparing it to industrialized farming, uh, animal farming counterparts. And then within animals, it's, it's so much from how they're treating um, sort of every, everything their supply chain touches and making sure um, no animals are harmed, which uh, actually there's, there's many products out there that um, you would think are, are traditionally vegan or not. And so really doing your, your diligence and making sure it's an entirely vegan product across every aspect of the supply chain. Um, to optimize your impact, I think prioritization and focus is, is of utmost importance. And so uh, we look at a variety of metrics, but investing in companies that are really aligned on their vision and their goals and what impact they want to have on the food system um, is, is really important for us at, at power plants. And so from a, from a power plant perspective, that's how we look at each company. And then we, from power plant, want to have optimal impact across all of those through the visionary entrepreneurs and brands that we invest in. And so we will make sure that our impact is diversified across all of those areas. So, um, you know, we have a, a an organic immunity product that really is focused on promoting health and wellness of people. And then we have a plant-based yogurt company that's really dedicated to completely removing uh, or declining the dairy industry and promoting dairy-free products and really raising awareness of what goes on in the industrialized dairy farm industry. Um, so it's making sure that we regularly have that diversity across impact outcomes within all the companies we invest in. And I think you, you brought up a great point about regulation as well, because uh, a lot of the um, reason our, our, our global food system is where it is today isn't uh, solely because of the private sector. It's also because of government regulation that has propped up this industry and, and uh, created these perverse incentives that have gotten us to where we are today in this unethical and unsustainable food system. And so um, while we, we do um, look at regulation and, and keep that in mind, uh, we are really focused on sort of making our greatest impact uh, through the private sector. Um, we really have a desire to create purpose-driven businesses that can have an impact. And on that note, really just believe in the heroic nature of, of business to really optimize impact. So I think as these uh, companies and the private sector grows here for sort of plant-based food and beverage, uh, regulation and government support will hopefully come next. Today's episode of Animalia is brought to you by Only What You Need, otherwise known as OWN, a fantastic vegan protein shake that is nut-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and gluten-free. Enjoy 20% off of any purchase of $25 or more until the end of the year using the code OWNPPV2020. That code is O-W-Y-N-P-P-V-2020. LiveOwn.com is the website. That's www.liveowyn.com. And now back to the episode. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, I guess, fine line to, to try to walk of how much is required on both sides. Because regulation can also, you know, have a huge impact incentivizing 
uh, certain behaviors too. And I think a great example of that is the U.S. wheat industry. And it was because of our supply of wheat that, you know, our, uh, our government put in a lot of subsidies to advance the sort of monocropping uh, of wheat um, in the 20th century uh, because it was seen as a strength of America. And it was seen as a sort of something we wanted to put out in the world and say, we can create more food products at cheaper prices and more affordable prices than any country, any, anybody else. And to do that, the government really incentivized that sort of push into monocropping, especially with wheat. And it's actually where the, you know, for folks listening, where the, why the, in the, in the old food pyramid, wheat is uh, so big, at, you know, it's sitting at the bottom at the base of that triangle is because we had so much wheat <laughs> to, uh, to sort of that we need to consume. That that's actually the reason it had nothing to do with science or nutrition. It actually just was a economic thing where at the time the U.S. government needed to push Americans to consume more wheat and 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 also globally to buy more wheat. So they we sort of constructed that food pyramid with a massive amount of wheat at the base. And so and people still today think they're supposed to eat predominantly wheat products. Like I, I should be eating lots of bread and lots of cereal because it's the base of the food pyramid. And, you know, we know that that's not really true nutritionally. Like, yeah, you can eat those. You, you should, you need some of those carbohydrates and stuff like that. But, you know, eating, you know, loaves of white processed bread every day or not, is not going to be good for your health. And so uh, it's just, it's regulation does play a role in these things. Yeah. And dairy, dairy too. Um, and, and how that, that industry has been propped up and the dairies dairy's section of the food pyramid is also just astronomical in terms of uh, the health benefits you need and the strong bones and that whole got milk campaign and really the the correlation between osteoporosis and dairy milk is um, actually positive not not negative um, and so yeah I, I agree the evolution of what the food pyramid has looked like is and its link um, with government subsidies to various uh, farm industries is um, it's pretty undeniable the hand that they've played in this. The other, the other seems important role for regulation from value regulation can add and needs to add is, and this is one thing that I don't, to, to me, it's not clear that this exists today in this movement. And maybe you can, you have some more examples of this, but just having benchmarks of like thresholds of what, what classifies as, progress. Like what are the standards for water usage that we need to meet on a per crop basis? What are the standards for um, regenerative farming? And, you know, that has to be done somewhat by an independent, you know, third party, i.e. government, because if every private company just gets to create their own standards and they're not, there's nothing kind of uniform we're looking at, we don't really have a way to compare or contrast, well, who's doing more in this regard? And, private enterprises will always follow their bottom line to a degree. There's sort of, it's hard to get them away from that completely. But I see this most often as an issue in the apparel industry today and a lot of the greenwashing out there on sustainability and a lot of brands is putting out like, Hey, we have sustainable source materials. And when you dig into it, like, well, how are you, how are you, like, how are you measuring that? What's the data point? Like what is the data point of of cotton that crosses over and makes it sustainable versus unsustainable cotton? That stuff is all very ambiguous. And to me, that creates a bit of a mistrust on the consumer side, but also creates an opportunity for abuse on the private side. 
without having those benchmarks there. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what are, what benchmarks are out there that are, that are fairly independent and what is, what would you like to see from regulation to, in establishing, or what what would you like regulation's role to be in establishing those benchmarks so that consumers, investors, you know, all different parts of the financial system and the consumer system can actually make somewhat objective decisions and, and analyses. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a great question, and it's it's a tough one. Um, I mean, we at at Power Plant Ventures are really dedicated to pairing uncompromised financial returns with optimal impact. And so what we typically like to do is link the financial pro forma of our companies with an impact pro forma so that as their top line grows, their impact is growing in lockstep and making sure that that is correlated um, and they don't lose sight of just being focusing on financial growth and sort of not uh, allowing their impact to grow at the same rate. And so that's really important uh, and something that we work very closely with our portfolio companies to do. Um, We have an impact consultant at Power Plant who used to lead sustainability at at Starbucks and also at uh, Power Plant Ventures portfolio company, Rebel. And he's put together a very comprehensive list of impact metrics we track across the entire portfolio for people, planet, and animals. However, I think one of the issues is we had to bring on a consultant to bring sort of this tracking system to light. And ideally, what I would love sort of the future of capital in our space um, and of impact capital management to look like is um, a... uh, widely accepted, used, and implemented uh, impact measurement system across these key areas. Um, Currently today, there's the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which I think are phenomenal. But again, those are goals, and they they don't have sort of um, metrics to track along the way that can be widely applicable to implement those goals. And so while I think the UN SDGs are great to understand um, the goals that are going to be needed to be implemented, they don't share a ton in terms of metrics to track to make those goals a reality. Um, And then a lot of people throw around ESG, which is um, uh, environmental, social, and sustainability and governance. And while that's those are great to uphold your portfolio to ESG standards. They're different for, for every company and uh, usually every capital manager as well. Um, so what, what we're trying to do at Power Plant is really start that conversation of, of coalescing around impact uh, metrics that matter and allow companies in our space to improve at each of them as they grow their top line. Yeah. And something like ESG is a great example of where like, it's great that it's there, but if it's not being used as a real financial like investment criteria from majority of investors, both, you know, institutional and retail, then it's sort of, it's kind of window dressing, right? Like, and it feels like window dressing today that, you know, companies 
we'll we'll put it out there when they have a story that looks positive on it. They'll ignore it when they don't. And by and large, investors just still follow bottom line growth. Like that's, you know, that seems like, from at least my perspective, that I haven't seen any kind of big changes in um, the financial markets and the financial scene since the rollout of ESG. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that's something we're we're trying to change internally first at Power Plant and then ideally be leaders um, within venture capital and private equity at really figuring out, cracking the code to link uh, financial returns with impact uh, returns as well. And there's one uh, phenomenal group that's, that's really working to create uh, these standards here, at least for U.S., uh, and, and North American venture capital and private equity firms is impact capital uh, managers. It's, it's a phenomenal membership and they put out a lot of great thought pieces. I encourage any of your listeners uh, interested in impact investing to go check them out. Let's talk about the S a little bit in ESG. How do we ensure that the progress you know, we're making in food and some of the many companies that you, know, you and your team have invested in that progress is shared equally across all socioeconomic classes. Because I think people have a perception, and some of this is true to a degree, that a lot of the, you know, sort of, whether it be vegan restaurants or um, advancements in food are priced sort of higher to capture the the sort of uh, middle class, upper middle class and above consumer that, you know, sort of really cares about these things. I think we see that with Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger as well. Like, they are priced above the average burger today. And, and, you know, you know, maybe for like for you and I, let's say that two or $3 extra burger, we can stomach that. And, you know, we're, it doesn't make a material difference in our life and we're lucky to be in that position. But for majority of people that two to $3 extra per burger is a deal breaker. And even if they want to do what's better for the environment, spending two or $3 extra per meal adds up to a point where that, really cripples them in other areas of their life. So how do we ensure that this innovation is spread equally across all socioeconomic classes? Or is it just a matter of sort of the typical thing with technology where it always starts higher priced as a technology improves, gets more efficient, it and it gets more widespread, it comes down in price and becomes more accessible. Where are we and if, if that is the case, then where are where are we on that curve in, you know, in some of the innovation in food? Yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely a function of, right, you're producing more, your cost of goods sold is able to come down significantly because production is optimized. And so I think Beyond Meat and Impossible are now getting to that stage. And actually, Beyond Meat, while it's still more expensive than a traditional burger, just did huge price cuts across the board, which I think is, is really important and for them to continue doing to hopefully have price parity with traditional industrialized farm meat products. Uh, it's something that we really advise our, the brands and companies we invest in to consider early on because for them to have an optimal impact at really p- pushing uh, the plant-based movement forward and actually making it not only mainstream, but just accessible to the everyday mass consumer who's maybe in the center of the country or exists in a food desert. Um, it's important for the brands while they may start out in the Airwans or the Whole Foods of the world um, to sort of prove product market fit and uh, their financial and business model. 
they need to have a vision for making this these products and their story uh, accessible to the mass consumer. And that's needs to be really built in the DNA of the company from an early stage. So having that goal and vision to get there to grow enough so that you do have the production efficiency and scale to meet a price point that's achievable for a lower income neighborhood is essential, but also having an approachable brand, right? Not necessarily leading with adaptogens or organic, but just leading with this is better for you, or this is better for the planet. Um, This improves your immunity. I think a lot of brands that aren't scaling enough in our world today to have a mass impact are too focused on sort of the niche sort of biohacking terminology of health and wellness. And what we really encourage brands to do is have a very simplified story that the clear benefit to the people, planet, and animals is there for every type of consumer, um, namely in the U.S., given that's where we're focused on investing. But I think that's that's absolutely critical to improve this movement. And one uh, portfolio company of ours that I think is a great example of, of always keeping a fun, approachable, accessible brand and affordable price points is Veggie Grill, which is the largest vegan fast casual chain nationwide uh, from Chicago and Boston to LA, uh, San Francisco and Seattle. They have um, just under 40 restaurants, uh, none of which say vegan, which can be a fairly polarizing term, especially for the mainstream consumer, but just promote veggies and plant-based and you can get sort of indulgent um, sort of plant-based junk food and buffalo wings and burgers and fries, but also healthier bowls and salads. And the menu is just a great, uh, a great mix of things that appeals to so many consumers. And they have so many menus on the uh, menu um, items that are under $10. And so I think uh, more companies like that who continue to just make it approachable, friendly, and affordable are really critical to making this this uh, movement and, and transformation a reality. Has Veggie Grill opened up any restaurants, you know, either directly within or sort of right within the outer boundaries of identified food deserts in the United States yet? Yeah. So we have one downtown LA um, in, a, in a lower income community, but um, that hasn't been a uh, huge goal from the outset, but is definitely something that we are considering as we expand. And we're actually looking at um, ghost kitchens and potentially also using um, a franchising model to expand in some, you know, non-traditional vegan areas like Texas and Florida. So definitely on the horizon. And um, once we sort of weather uh, the impacts of what COVID's done for the food service industry. Just a little bit of a tangent and kind of off from the topic list we agreed on, but I think it's it's a pretty interesting discussion, is just on what your thoughts are on if we'll see an acceleration, especially coming out of this pandemic, of plant-based eating coming from China. And the reason I bring that up is just, you know, China has a significant impact on the global food supply just because of the sheer number of people in China. And as someone myself who spent majority of 2017 and 18 in China, you know, I did notice that there isn't a big, at the time, big plant-based sort of eating movement, which is, you know, somewhat 
uh, I think people think counterintuitive because, um, you know, traditionally Buddhists and traditionally China up until, you know, I would say Deng Xiaoping took over for General Mao um, after the Cultural Revolution was predominantly uh, poor country where, you know, there wasn't much access to, to meat um, dairy and, and sort of the way we think about it today. And that has changed a lot as China has grown economically, but it's, I I've seen some signs and just talking to my friends in China that one of the things coming out of this coronavirus pandemic is the identification and the realization that livestock in all forms of, of industrial farming of animals, uh, you know, creates these, opportunities for pathogens and for disease to be spread and that we're going to see sort of a big, you know, rush and push. We may see a big rush and push into plant-based alternatives. I know Beyond Meat just got into China a couple months ago. Uh, I actually, we never talked about this, but I actually uh, had a couple of meetings at their headquarters in January to sort of advise them on things to look out for when doing so. Um, it's one of the, one of the, um, Beth Moskowitz, who's the head of special projects at Beyond Meat, is a is a close friend of mine, and so we uh, I went in there a couple of times to talk China, what I what I learned from a cultural standpoint. But the other interesting thing about China is how quickly sometimes they can move and progress. And I think the the example I'll give is how quickly they moved into digital payments. And part of that is they didn't have a history of credit cards and a credit card system that they had to move off of, but they were able to go from predominantly a cash economy to a digital payment economy in, inside of, I would say, two decades. And that, that's pretty remarkable when you, think about, when you think about it. And now, like, everything is through WeChat, um, Alipay. And, you know, I think one of the luxuries that China has in making, in, in making cultural moves fast is that they don't have as much diversity of culture, despite the population size, as, um, as the United States does, which is more of a melting pot, of course. And, you know, we'll, again, don't want to open up the can of worms of the, you know, the, 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 the minority cultures that are oppressed in China, because that, that is a thing and that is a problem. And there's a lot of human rights, you know, uh, considerations need to be discussed there. But just what, what are your thoughts on the China market? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we are seeing that. I think uh, we don't need to go down the rabbit hole of China's wet market, but um, the potential link of that to the coronavirus outbreak has really fostered conversation at, in China and demand for more plant-based proteins in China. So I absolutely do think um, demand there has increased in the short term as, and is going to continue to accelerate and increase in the future. Um, there's been a variety of articles that have cited, you know, suppliers are already seeing a demand for plant-based proteins really surge within Asia. And I think your your point for their jump to digital payments and uh, mobile phones and technology is, is an important one because it is emerging markets are in a position to always leapfrog developed markets because they don't have the old infrastructure. Um, and so I do think China is in a position to potentially adopt plant-based on a mass scale more quickly than um, the growth that we've seen in the U.S. in the next decade. So we are very excited about that. Um, but I also think it's it's interesting, I mean, the, the China study and what Dr. Campbell was able to find in China, just the linkage between um, less meat and more plant-based uh, 
pretty much uh, can drastically uh, decrease a person's chances for developing some of these chronic Western diseases. Um, it's, it's interesting that backdrop versus where China is now and what their economic growth has done um, in terms of increasing urbanization, uh, pollution, adoption of Western diets, and therefore adoption of Western diseases. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do firmly believe, you know, if I had to make a bet, and, and at some point, right, when you're, you know, like, you know, being in, in venture capital, right, you, you are making bets, you know, to, in edu- as educated as you can. But I, if I had to make a bet, I do think we're going to see an acceleration of this movement in China and in um, just food tech in general. And I think it's going to be a good thing for the planet. Uh, and I think this pandemic is going to incite that because typically, you know, again, when the China in, aligned with, you know, the, the CCP, the, the governing body, um, all get behind something as they have, you know, with, they did it with digital payments, they've done it with AI. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, they're doing it with autonomous driving right now. I think they're going to leapfrog us there as well. I think they're going to leapfrog us on this topic. Doesn't leapfrogging meaning? I just think they'll get more mass adoption of it faster from a consumer level, because uh, they again they have the ability to influence their culture at the consumer level from a central regulation body faster than we can. Now, of course, there are there there are trade offs with such a system, right? Um, in terms of the control they have and the lack of the censorship, lack of free speech, all those things, but it does buy them the ability to push these things when they want to uh, at a faster pace. And I think uh, it'd be interesting to see how that happens. Yeah. Our, our other portfolio company, Just Egg, is also um, looking to, to enter China and it, the, the demand and, and usage of eggs in uh, Asian uh, diets is, is large. And so uh, that's a big opportunity as well outside of just uh, beef and pork. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the dairy industry is not as big in China, but the egg industry is massive, massive, massive. The pork industry is massive, massive, massive. Um, so uh, back to the regulation topic. Another topic we I wanted to discuss with you was, you know, let's look at the U.S. for now. Whether or not, you know, debate of which we put a na- national tax on added sugar. Now, I am a proponent of it just because I do think, to me, this is the a type of example where, we can use just the right touch of regulation in a predominantly free market system to get the change we need. Uh, essentially, creating a tax system is a, you know, I would argue is a free market solution versus a, uh, you know, sort of socialist or controlled um, uh, market solution. And, you know, the challenges with this to me come in, how do you define added sugar? you know, what, what types of sugars are included in that. And there's going to be a lot of debate over that. Um, you know, what the size of that tax should be, what are the ability for people, what are the abilities for people are, or should they have them to offset those taxes with making gains in other areas in their product? If you increase your, you know, average wage, can you offset your, your sugar tax? Like thing, things like that. There's, there, these things are complicated for sure, but we've, we've done complicated things before, and um, yeah, I just wanted to have this discussion with you around the sugar tax. And I don't think it's an end-all be-all solution. Not, not, there is no silver bullet, right? We need to innovate and make changes in a number of different areas. But what are your thoughts on a tax for added sugar? And would, you know, do you think it's something we should put into practice? And if so, how? 
No, I think it's a it's a great idea. It's it's one that I I actually haven't spent too much time researching, but when you when you brought it up to me and, and prep for the podcast, I was really interested by that idea. I do agree in sort of fleshing uh, that regulation out. The the biggest issue for me was just defining what added sugar is. I think there's some sugar alternatives uh, like stevia that really are not are not great. And aspartame is arguably worse than traditional cane sugar. But then there's other sweeteners like monk fruit uh, that I I wouldn't think should be taxed and actually do have some health benefit that also make products taste good. And so, um, you know, I think it would be difficult to implement. I do think a case study of just sort of the carbon emissions taxes in Europe uh, could be used in in sort of defining and creating this tax. Um, I do think it should also be directed at some of the larger food strategics rather than uh, smaller food and beverage startups that are entering the space. And so maybe having some type of consideration for the size of the organization and um, correlating the tax with that uh, is is an idea just to help make it more implementable. Um, but I, I do think within regulation of the, the food industry, to me, the number one thing is just rolling back the support and stimulus of industrialized farming, uh, I think, and monocrop farming. So that from a regulatory standpoint would be uh what I would prioritize if I were a lobbyist for the food industry on the Hill, um, really focusing on breaking down all of the perverse incentives and uh, support that industrialized farming uh, gets from the government, as well as monocropping and what sort of GMO uh, and and Monsanto and Roundup has done to human health. I think we, we, starting there by just rolling some of that support back would be of utmost importance. And then as those industries are, are hopefully uh, no longer supported in a major way by the government and new food and beverage companies and uh, food and beverage strategics uh, will need to sort of face the consequences of that, then I think taxes on sugar and other things they may be using uh, in, in instead of uh, industrialized farm products uh, should be should be maybe implemented then can you talk about Monsanto a little bit I know you you made a note to bring it up earlier but we didn't get into it can for our listeners can you just describe what Monsanto is yeah um, you know I'm some listeners may be may or may not be familiar with um, Roundup, but um, Monsanto is one of the uh, major conglomerates responsible for Roundup, which effectively is on uh, the majority of monocropped products, not only in the U.S., but globally today. So corn, soy, and wheat. And uh, what that does is it, it forces farmers to use uh, GMO seeds and then spray Roundup on them so that the seeds don't um, generate any type of disease or aren't eaten by any bugs. And so it's really able to optimize output of these monocropped products. 
Um, however, it's actually a known carcinogen and a lot of the um, lawsuits around the cancer that Roundup's been linked to are just now starting to come uh, to light and, and they're happening now. And so I think more consumers will become aware of just the, the health risks, namely around cancer, that uh, GMO crops that are typically sprayed with Roundup uh, have have created. And so that's that is important when looking at, um, you know, plant based uh, food and beverage products is is trying to find uh, non-organic, uh, I mean, non-GMO products, not necessarily do they have to be organic and understood that that's definitely not in everyone's price point, but uh, non-GMO will at least sort of remove the risk that it has been around uh, a Roundup, which is a known carcinogen. Yeah, the, the GMO discussion too, to me, is is sort of an interesting one because from a uh, non-organic farming standpoint and and Roundup as an example of that, it's it's hugely problematic. But I also worry a little bit, you know, as we've talked about prior to this, you know, I'm uh, optimistic about, say, cell-based meats long-term. You know, I really don't have a great timeline on those. But long-term, I'm an optimistic of cell-based meats. And just generally, I I think we're likely, well, certainly if we get to 10 billion, 11 billion people, going to likely need some form of biogenerated food to, to feed people and not, you know, continue to sort of uh, harvest the earth. But if if you believe that, then I, I get a little worried about just sort of training consumers to just think all all forms of GMO are bad, right? Because technically, a, 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 a bio-generated piece of food would be a genetically modified organism. And, you know, then we're going to have to sort of figure out how to walk that back and say, oh, wait, majority of GMOs or these types of GMOs are bad. These are okay. There are other examples today in society of, of genetically modified organisms that are, are okay and beneficial to people. But I I know I worry a little bit about sort of creating this sort of ubiquitous culture against all GMOs and sort of, you know, it's kind of become one of the most important labels on food is saying it's non-GMO. And I think what they're trying to say is, hey, we're not using the harmful GMOs such as uh, that Roundup creates, but... I worry a little bit about just sort of classifying every GMO as negative to the consumer's mind. No, I think that's a that's a great point. And if anything, I, I advise folks, you know, non-GMO means it likely hasn't been sprayed with Roundup. And so it's great if a product that especially uses monocropped um, ingredients that are known for Roundup, right? So it's, it's a nutrition bar that has peanuts or um, is a, a soy-based product plant-based milk. Um, if it says non-GMO, that gets me excited that it probably hasn't been sprayed with Roundup and, and meets those non-GMO standards. However, I think you, you bring up a great point. Just the fact that um, non-GMO has become positive in consumers' minds because it means Roundup wasn't used in the production of those crops is creating a negative correlation of GMO in the consumers' minds. And while I think commercialization of cell-based meat is at least four or five plus years away, um, we are worried about consumer adoption. So commercialization doesn't just mean that they can now produce it at scale and price points are within, you know, acceptability for consumers. It's also if consumers are going to be 
willing to adopt that. And I agree with you. It's it's really important if we're, our global population is going to exceed 10 billion by 2050. Uh, so it's going to take education and um, some maybe re renaming of that non-GMO label to mean non-Roundup or, or something is an, is an, an interesting point because it, it definitely, I think there's already going to be some issues around just consumer adoption of lab grown in general, um, but this adds to it. One of the quick topics that uh, you wanted to add that kind of stood out to me, I think it's a good question to just bring up as we wrap this up. You said how how do VCs manage financial returns and maximizing impact when they're not always positively correlated. So can you talk more about that? I mean, you know, the, and you're right, like not, it's, you know, maximizing financial returns to the, you know, utmost degree, if that, it does not always correlate with, with impact, positive financial returns, financial returns can, can correlate with impact, of course. And that's sort of what you guys set out to do and find, but it might not be the maximization of those. It just means it's still positive and still making money. So can you talk about that question you posed and how, how you, how you and your team think about it today? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess I'd just start with, you know, our, our real desire at Power Plan is just to help support the creation of purpose-driven businesses, see them have an impact that improves our planet, people, and animals. And together with those companies, realize a financial benefit along the way for ourselves and our limited partners and capital that we've been uh, judiciously um, and um, given the opportunity to deploy. Um, that being said, they're not always going to happen in, in lockstep with one another. And so my, um, what I touched on this earlier, but just the implementation of having a financial pro forma for our portfolio companies and linking that to an impact pro forma at least holds ourselves and our uh, C-suite teams accountable and understanding um, that they are positively linked and they can easily make some things or tweak some things to optimize that impact. Is, is every single decision um, that's made financially always going to positively um, increase their impact across people, planet, and animals? No, not always. And financial success and returns are really important because if you don't have that, you have zero impact. And so keeping that in mind where they do have to make decisions for the business where growth and profitability are important because that's what's going to allow them to stay alive and continue generating their impact. Um, it's it's uh, the foundation, um, but we are really tasked with the responsibility of supporting our companies to uh, transition that financial return into positive impact as much as they can. And so that's what we do as sort of their financial and capital partners is constantly look at the relationship between the financial pro forma and the impact pro forma, make sure it's positive and, and see if we can increase the correlation or optimize the impact without being a huge detriment to their financial growth or profitability. Um, in terms of local produce, I want to ask you this question. I forgot to pose it in the outline, but there's a lot 
of data that supports that shows that the more we can buy locally, especially our produce and things like that, uh, you know, the better off we are, um, you know, in terms of minimizing transport costs and um, also kind of can, can push against monocropping as well. If people are open to just eating kind of seasonally what's available around them. And I think there's health benefits, allergen benefits to this too. But it also feels a little bit, and there's room for both of these, of course, but it feels a little bit counter to the notion of big, you know, national food brands that want to, you know, create products and distribute them throughout the country, even if they are, you know, uh, using regenerative farming and using modern sustainable practices, which the brands in your portfolio do. How do you, what are your thoughts on that? How do you marry that? Do you think there's just always going to be a mix of both? Do you want to encourage you know, when at scale more and more your portfolio companies to be manufacturing, um, you know, kind of locally as much as possible through a number of distribution centers to minimize, to, to, to sort of feed into that? Or do you think there's just always going to be some mass market and national, you know, food brands that we're, we're going to use for certain things and we're going to always then try to buy locally for other things? Or what are your just thoughts on that sort of that, 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 that system? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. I think it there's it's always going to be blended, uh, but the importance for local and local supply chains is important not only because of the environmental impact you mentioned, just in terms of less carbon emissions and transportation, but I think the health impact is huge and actually sometimes overlooked. Um, there's actually a interesting science behind. Um, eating produce from the geographic region you're in, your body digests it more because it's grown in the same light and earth that you are currently living in, and therefore the nutrients are more bioavailable. So I think it's it's really interesting and compelling um, to uh, think about buying locally. And a lot of times that's, um, you know, produce. And so using some large uh, global or national brands mixed with local produce, I think is a great strategy for folks. Um, And fortunately, there's a lot of great companies that are making local produce more accessible. Uh, One is Lettuce Grow, which is um, hydroponic, very water efficient tower gardens where folks can grow produce on their own. And it's, it's pretty affordable with each plant only, only $2 and grown with pretty minimal water. Uh, another company is Seal the Seasons, and they work with local farms in your state and freeze-dry produce. They have both fruits and vegetables. Uh, currently, they're in only in North Carolina, but they're going to continue expanding their supply chain based on local farms in each state. And so I, I think it's it's really important for non-processed produce companies to have some type of local component or local supply chain. Um, However, obviously produce is different in every state and every geography. So there's always going to be a need for companies who produce in one place and distribute nationally. And I think that's really important also for for food deserts and how those are created from socioeconomic status, but also food deserts in the sense of um, food production, um, right? So areas where they don't have a ton of arable land um, or are in states where monocropping has just engorged the entire farm industry like corn has with Iowa. 
uh, areas like that, it's important to still have uh, health and wellness brands that maybe are not grown or use ingredients locally, but are, are shipped and distributed there. And then lastly, what are your thoughts on, you know, how, how has this pandemic, you know, what are the, what are the lasting effects of this pandemic going to be on the food industry, let's say in the next, you know, three to five year timeline? You know, we, we, we know what the pandemic is affecting us in other areas, how we work, modern offices and workplace settings, I think are going to change education and schooling seems to be sort of probably permanently affected in some way. What are the lasting impacts you see coming out of this on our, our food system and food supply? Um, number one is just the acceleration of plant-based. So I think that will has been accelerated uh, during the coronavirus pandemic and will only continue to be exacerbated as sort of the rising health concerns related to animal food production have been brought to light um, not only given where the outbreak started, but also the, the shutdown of many meat processing facilities due to coronavirus outbreaks in the U.S. Um, number two is I think consumers are increasingly concerned with their impact on the environment. And if anything, that's really been a silver lining um, of what this pandemic has resulted in. I think consumers are are more aware than they were before the pandemic started on their consumption decisions and how that affects uh, the planet and animals, which is encouraging. Um, I'd say stepping away from sort of the the impact um, areas, there are other areas that and themes that have really been developed during quarantine that I think will continue in a post-COVID world. And one that's direct to consumer, um, it's really grown within food service and grocery. So I think we'll continue to see D to C both in, in meal and grocery delivery continue to grow as more people are at home. They've discovered the convenience of ordering in this way. And um, I think we'll continue to do so. Number two is I think urban areas are going to continue to be very challenged. I mean, given what happened in New York City and a lot of the other major metropolitan areas and in China as well, um, I think there's going to be this larger transition to suburban areas, which could have a positive impact on sort of environmental pollution, but um, is, is inc- I'm, we're encouraging our entrepreneurs to just sort of sit with this trend from urban to suburban, given it's been such uh, growth in the opposite direction towards urban for the last several decades, this is going to potentially be a very big shift. And so what does that do for food service and how consumers are buying and interacting with uh, food? And then lastly, offices and commutes probably won't be as important. Um, I think more people will work from home. uh, And so that sort of affects the food and beverage industry in a variety of ways. There's a lot of trickle-down effects from that. On-the-go convenience form factors, such as nutrition bars and ready-to-drink beverages or single-serve um, packaged goods have been in decline. Uh, sort of grab-and-go lunch food service uh, restaurants have been in decline and I think will continue to be in decline. La Plaine Quotidian filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy and they're closing a lot of their locations. So I think we'll continue to see um, more of the trickle-down effect of just uh, what working from home 
is how it's going to affect just consumer preferences and trends and the food and beverage brands are going to be have to sort of figure out how to adapt to that and, and make sure that they are uh, catering to these new consumer needs going forward. Yeah, great answers. So uh, just finishing up, what uh, just some sort of lighter stuff to to finish up the discussion. Um, what's uh, what are what are some of the things you're cooking and eating right now and enjoying, or have you have you have you changed your own cooking and eating habits? in quarantine is there, you know, what's, what's been, what, what has that been like for you? I have become, um, it's actually very supportive of the direct to consumer uh, growth trend that I mentioned. I have become, um, overly dependent on, uh, my daily harvest smoothies and my thistle lunches and meals. Um, and so I have very much a routine where I'm able to, uh, either make my smoothie or reheat one of those meals. It's easy. It's convenient. Um, I know uh, the supply chain of where the produce is coming from. And so if anything, quarantine has made me overly dependent on Daily Harvest and and Thistle, a a vegan meal delivery company. Um, And one other thing that I've been implementing pretty regularly is fasting. I think fasting is... um, only going to continue to grow in terms of just the consumer trend. The health benefits are so obvious. And if it does become more mainstream, I think could also be um, somewhat of a solution to just the the um, unsustainable consumption trends that we see in America today. So I've been doing intermittent fasting pretty regularly and also looking into some uh, fast mimicking diets. Um, recently did the the Prolon uh, five-day fast mimicking fast, which is a, a pretty cool plant-based diet coming out of USC's Nutrition for Longevity, where you're able to eat a variety of things over five days from kale crackers to soups to olives, um, but your brain thinks you're fasting um, and still restricting calories. So you get all of the health benefits in terms of full cell turnover um, from a five-day water fast, but you're still able to consume. So really into fasting and, and the potential for growth within this fast mimicking diet realm. That's super interesting. Yeah. I've been uh, I've been trying to sort of go to a two-meal versus three-meal system, sort of eating a large breakfast uh, early in the morning, coupled with a workout routine, trying to do it early, get the metabolism going, and then sort of fasting through most of the day and afternoon, and then eating another large meal, call it like more like four o'clock, five o'clock at the latest, rather than you know traditional dinners at like seven or eight, because it's like I think eating those big heavy late evening meals are not great for your health. No. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, it's sort of like so ingrained in our culture, right? Because it is. You know, we work, you work till six and you don't have time to cook or have that meal. And like that dinner meal is that, like that one where you get together with your loved ones, your significant other. And like, that's your time together and you celebrate food that way. And so it's so ingrained in our culture to have like our biggest meal at seven or 8 p.m., and uh, it's just, I, I don't think it's good for our health at all. No, it's it's so detrimental to your health. Um, one thing, too, I've been doing it, on days where fasting has been tough is this, uh, it's, it's called a fast bar. And it's a plant-based nut bar that allows your body to continue fasting, but you're able to eat the bar. 
And um, I found that really useful. And then I think similar to you, uh, I work out now on, on an empty stomach or a very small meal. And I, I can't, I can't have an effective workout if I've had a big meal beforehand. My body just needs to be sort of clear headed. And I, I generate energy now in a different way, not from my food, which is great to not have that dependence on that. Totally. Yeah. I either get the workout in the morning or I do it around three or four right before that big meal. Mm, and that's another advantage of working from home is that there's a little more flexibility in the schedule, right? Oh yeah. In a world where I have to go into an office, yeah, working out and cooking from three to five o'clock is out of the question. Uh, but in today's world, I can sort of say, hey, I'm actually going to work from 7 a.m. till 3 p.m. And then I'm going to take two hours off. And then I'm going to resume for an hour and email and stuff. I'm going to work the same amount of time. I'm just going to I'm just going to customize my, my day a little differently, but that would, was never possible in a world I have to go to an office because there's meetings at three and four o'clock that I can't miss. Exactly. I, I totally agree. I've been able to really dedicate time to fasting because I've had that meal timing flexibility, um, which is critical. And you really see the effects when you're able to do it for long periods of time, which I'd never been able to really do before. Um, the other thing that I'm, uh, secretly happy I get to do almost every day working from home is just celery juice first thing in the morning. Um, both the Anthony Williams, the medical medium, swears by that to really offset any type of um, ongoing chronic disease or virus that we uh, innately have in our bodies. Um, he, the celery juice is able to really keep them dormant. And then Jim Quick, um, author of the Limitless book for brain optimization, really recommends that first thing in the morning. So I've been loving being able to make my fresh celery juice because um, you you really shouldn't add anything else to it, like water or lemon. And so a lot of the- Just celery, celery blended. Just celery, yep. And so a lot of the pre-made celery juices, you know, have added water or lemon. And so that uh, reduces their effectiveness. So being able to make that every morning and having the time to do that without rushing out the door for my commute has been a treat. And celery is what like ninety some percent water, ninety eight percent water. Water. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we we typically finish with the four just sort of quick rapid fire questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to get the perfect answer. It's just the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, <laughs> Great. The first one is: uh, Is there? Um, I mean, you've already cited many of these, so this would be easy for you. Is there a book? Uh, or great, you know, must-have read that you recommend for anybody interested in climate conservation, environmentalism, these topics. Name the one book that you think everybody should read. Project Drawdown, and then sorry for two, but diet-related specifics. Omnivore's Dilemma. Project Drawdown and Omnivore's Dilemma. Great. Now, what about a you know either film, documentary, doc series, TV series that is also in this world that's not. Super well known. So that's just like, you know, you can't use planet Earth, for example. Yeah. Um, anything in that realm that you, you know, think people should go watch? Fasting. The documentary Fasting. Yep. Uh, the next question is, what is your favorite animal? Chimpanzees. And then the last thing is, what is the one behavioral change that everybody can do um, to help this save this planet that you would like to see them do more widespread? Just one simple thing that is accessible to all that you would like to see become, uh, you know, wide, more widely adopted? Uh, meatless Mondays. 
Meatless think. Mondays. Yeah. You just just for the alliteration there, like meatless <laughs> Thursdays are not okay. <laughs> Uh, Meatless Mondays has already generated quite a bit of social media following. And so I think the more that we can build off that foundation to just grow that movement, um, the benefits to the planet and animal welfare um, of more and more people just avoiding meat one day a week is really powerful. And I think a small step in the right direction. So really excited to hopefully see that grow and encourage others to implement it again it doesn't need to be monday i think that's just what's grown in popularity but one day a week avoiding all animal products um, it's just one small move i think a lot of mass consumers have the means and ability to do 